One, I trust God will bless us as we begin uh, a study here in a very famous passage in Colossians, perhaps the most famous passage in Colossians, often called the Christ Hymn. And uh, we begin that he- our study here in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15, and you'll notice that it is uh, so dense with truth that is glorious to our souls. Um, we're simply going to consider verse 15 this morning. And so hear now the Word of God from Colossians 1 and verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Our Father, we are thankful for this great day in which we might gather, this Lord's Day in which we can celebrate, uh, indeed, our Lord's resurrection, even as we think about His incarnation uh, this time of year. We are thankful for the Word that lies in front of us. Indeed, Lord, we we have offered you our praises. We have given you our prayers. And now we come to receive your instruction. So we pray as your people that you would give testimony to the word that is preached and that you would glorify your truth in our hearts. We pray that this time in your Scripture would enlighten those who are ignorant. And it would awaken those who are careless. It would reclaim those who are wandering. It would establish those who are weak. It would comfort the feeble-minded. And it would indeed make us a people ready for our Lord. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. It was in 1978 that the astrophysicist Kevin uh, Michael Hart wrote his book, The Hundred, a ranking of the most influential persons in history. Uh, And so the the book is, just as the title implies, a ranking of the top hundred people that have influenced us throughout time. Uh, sold over half a million copies in 15 different languages. It's kind of like the, the playoffs of human greatness. The, you'll find on his hundred scientists and generals and rulers and musicians and inventors and philosophers and, yes, even preachers, believe it or not. Uh, the, the notables, perhaps, uh, we might uh, be interested to know that five Americans made the top hundred. Uh, George Washington, number 26. One place ahead of Karl Marx. Uh, The Wright brothers, number 28. Thomas Jefferson, number 64. I thought it was interesting to find that JFK is one of the top 100 most influential people ever to live. Coming in at number 81, Henry Ford. There at number 91. Religious leaders I mentioned uh, made uh, the list. Buddha scored number 4. Confucius, number 5. Lao Tzu, the founder of Taoism, number 73. Uh, Many uh, 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 made the list who were known for their Christian influence. John Calvin, number 57. Augustine, number 54. Martin Luther, number 25th most influential person in the world, according to Michael Hart. And we even have biblical figures. Moses, number 25, one ahead of Charles Darwin, you might note. Paul, the man whose letter we're going to study in a moment, came in number six. The sixth most influential man ever to live, according to this silly study. Okay. 
Uh, some, some people you never heard of. Anybody know Louis, Louise, Louis, I don't know, Pasteur? Uh, he figured out how to inoculate us from diseases, which I think is probably important, especially in days like this. Uh, he also found a way to keep milk from going bad, uh, hence the name pasteurization. Louis Pasteur, number 11 in the top 100 men. Of course, we all want to know, don't we, where, where Jesus ranked, right? Where did Jesus Christ come in? He came up pretty high, you'll, be, you'll note. Jesus Christ, number three. Je- Jesus gets the bronze, okay? So uh, it, right, right, uh, right behind Isaac Newton, number two, who, by the way, worshipped Jesus Christ as his God, and uh, number one, you might not be surprised to hear, was Mah- the prophet Muhammad. Uh, he would write of Jesus uh, that he was the inspiration of the most influential religion in history. And he added, this is what I found somewhat uh, interesting, I quote him, Jesus had an extraordinarily impressive personality. Um, I guess it's true, I I imagine. He also created all things, which is kind of cool. And uh, he rose from the dead and saves those who put their faith in him, which I think is also impressive. And he had a good personality, evidently. Um, and so, so there it is, Jesus, according to uh, this, uh, this one man, uh, number, the third most influential person ever to live. I wonder, how would you rank Jesus? How would you describe him? Would, would you describe him as a religious founder, even a, a, of a very important religion? Would you describe him as someone who has a credible personality? Or would you describe him as something else? I imagine you probably would. You understand that how you describe Jesus, how you understand Jesus, will determine how you interact with Jesus. For instance, if you believe that Jesus is simply a good teacher, you will therefore listen to what he says. If you believe Jesus is a a, a, a virtuous example, you might uh, follow his lead. If you think Jesus is a wise sage, you might go to him for counsel in your times of confusion. But if you believe that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, as Paul uh, explains here, if you believe that he is the creator of all things, if you believe he has come to save sinners, if you believe that he has re- is reigning as Lord of Lords and King of Kings, that will change everything in your life. After all, what do you do with a king? What do you do with a king? You simply don't go to a king for advice, though you might. That's not the predominant reality that you interact with a king. You don't go uh, to a king to follow his example. You certainly don't go to a king and ask him to be your servant. You go to a king and surrender. You go to a king and bow before his throne and say, my Lord, I will do whatever you ask. I do tell you this morning, according to scripture, that there is coming a day in which there will be a universe-wide ranking of Jesus. Everyone who has ever lived will rank Jesus, and I could tell you beforehand, he ain't coming in third. We all shall bow our knee before him. I think this, therefore, is an important question for us to think about, how we rank Jesus. Colossians 1 is going to help us to, uh, to determine that. In fact, in fact, in fact, what we see in Colossians 1, as I've already mentioned, is perhaps one of the most concentrated descriptions of the glories of Jesus found anywhere in the New Testament. 
Uh, we're actually going to spend from verses 15 through 20, God willing, four messages leading us all, all the way up to Christmas Eve, uh, uh, exploring the glories of Jesus. And the, verse 15 through 20 is often referred to by theologians as the Christ hymn. We do this because many think this was actually an ancient hymn in which the church sang or one that Paul wrote. Uh, in fact, we, there was a man named, a Roman ruler named Pliny the Younger who wrote in the year 100 AD. It's a very important letter he wrote because uh, it was a very early letter and he was asking the, the Roman emperor how he's supposed to deal with this new faction called Christians. And in this letter he wrote, they, they meet on a certain fixed day before it was light when they sang in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as God, end quote. Some wonder if the hymn that they were singing in 100 AD is actually the verses that we have in front of us. It, it, it's, it's somewhat obscure in the English, but it has a lyrical structure to it. In fact, if you look in verse 15, we read, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now look, in, you see in verse 18, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So many divide this hymn up in two verses. The first verse, verses 15 all the way through, about halfway through 18, deals with Christ's supremacy over creation. The second verse, there beginning in verse 18, deals with Christ's supremacy over the new creation, namely the church. And what we find out in the first verse is that every part of this cosmos is created by Jesus. We find out in the second part that every, every part of the cosmos will be reconciled through Jesus. And so there's, a, there's a, a lyrical structure to these verses. And I think the reason why Paul put it this way, whether he's taking a, an established hymn or creating his own, is that he wants us not simply to know these truths, but to celebrate them. You do understand it's okay to celebrate the truths that we believe. Right? He wants us to worship God because of them. And I pray he would do this work in our life this morning. I mentioned we're just going to look in verse 15. Uh, really, uh, they're, they're, you, you can see this easily divides into two points. He is the image of the invisible God. In other words, we'll consider Christ as prophet. And then secondly, we see he is the firstborn of all creation and we'll consider Christ as king. So we're going to consider Christ's prophetic ministry and his kingly ministry. So we begin, of course, with Christ as prophet. As you see, once again, he is the image of the invisible God. It's interesting that, that Paul doesn't simply uh, describe Jesus as being the image of God, but he describes him as being the image of the invisible God. The invisible God. And so in what way is God invisible? Well, we, of course, we might say, well, God is spirit. He has no body, therefore he cannot be seen with the eye. In that way, clearly he is invisible. But we also might refer to God's moral purity, his holiness. In fact, when God encountered Moses, you will recall that he says to Moses, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And so Paul will write in 1 Timothy chapter 6, this glorious truth that God dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. And so, of course, that raises a dilemma. If we can't see God, how can he be known to us? How can we understand who he is? You see, God, the invisible God, must therefore disclose himself. He must show us who he is, and he is delighted to do so. He does so because he wants to be seen. God wants to be known. He doesn't remain hidden. He wants to reveal himself to us, and he does so chiefly in Jesus. 
For Jesus, as Paul says, he is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the image of the one we cannot see. Jesus makes the invisible one visible. He shows us God, and and theologians have called this the prophetic ministry of Jesus. And so if, if we were to ask, is Jesus a prophet? We would rightly say, yes, of course he is a prophet. But we don't want to stop there. He's more than a prophet, most certainly. But he is a prophet. He is one who comes and reveals to us who God is. And so John would write in his prologue in chapter 1 and verse 18, no one has ever seen God. God, the only son who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Or Hebrews 1 and verse 3, the son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. You ever been to... uh, traveled in Europe and gone to one of these incredible cathedrals, um, these majestic structures that they built long ago with these, these vaulted ceilings. In fact, there, there's one in North Carolina that's gorgeous. It's on a, a college campus called Duke University. Um, and it, it is, uh, in my unbiased opinion, the most glorious building in all of America. It's just it's this glorious uh, cathedral, and you look up and the, the intricate stonework that's above you, and at and you, and, and Duke's uh, Chapel, you'll see all these little uh, individual gargoyles every which way, and yet when we go to these places, when people go to these, these cathedrals, and you look up, soon, soon you're going to get a, a crick in your neck, aren't you? You're going to become uncomfortable as you stare up, or you're going to walk into something, and so quite often many people will walk into these buildings, so they'll never see the majesty that is above them. What I understand is some of these European cathedrals now give tourists slanted mirrors in which they can hold. And so they could walk around the cathedral and in looking down, they're able to see what is above them. Well, in many ways, Jesus is like that, isn't he? He's that slanted mirror that when we look at Christ, we get to see the glories that were hidden from us, the glories that are above us. If you want to know what God is like, study the life of Jesus. What is it, Uh, Philip, who said to Jesus, show us the Father, and that will be enough. Remember that? Remember what Jesus said to him? How do you not know me, Philip? How how is it that I have been with you so long that you ask me to show you the Father? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And so when you look at Jesus, my friends, you see God. You say, how is that possible? Well, it's possible because Jesus is God in the flesh. We have called this in Christian tradition the incarnation. Simply a Latin word that you're well familiar with, aren't you? Carne, the Latin word for flesh or, or body. And in, so in, incarnate, in the flesh, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. That Jesus has makes God visible because he, he is the second person of the triune God who has become man, God in the flesh. And so we read in, in Matthew chapter 1 this time of year when the question is, is raised to Joseph when he's encountering the angel, what kind of child will this be? The answer is he will be Emmanuel for he is God with us. This is, of course, the incarnation, or we talk about the virgin birth this time of year. I mention this because it is continually under attack in church pulpits throughout this land. And so let me be unequivocally clear. The incarnation, the virgin birth, when we begin to consider these truths, we come to the very heart of what it means to be a Christian. 
the very heart of our faith. That when we celebrate Christ this year, we, we believe God was in a crib. We believe that God was in the arms of Mary. We believe that God, without ceasing to be God, became a man. And this is the very core of our faith, at least part of it. And if you're to know anything about Christ, if you know anything about God, you have to go through the door called the virgin birth. If you want to get acquainted with who Jesus is, you have to turn the handle called the incarnation. You, you can't climb in through the window. You can't shoot down a chimney and try to get to him in your own way. If you were to come to know God, you have to come to Jesus and Jesus will announce to you, everything that you will know about me must start here. I am God in the flesh. This is how he reveals to us God. This is the truth that Christians have been believed from the very beginning. In fact, I think this is one of the great uh, defense of the Christian faith. The last people in the world to believe that a man was God would have been monotheistic Jews. If you lived in the East, you might have been a pantheist. You believe that God is a force. You would believe that this God force would come often and in the form of avatars there and, and be upon this, the world. So the idea that God was on this world wouldn't be strange to you at all. If you lived in the West, you were Greek, you were not a pantheist, but a polytheist. You believed in many gods, and you believe those many gods would often dress up as humans and run around this place and cause all sorts of mischief. The only people in the world who were monotheists at this time were Jews. They believed in a transcendent God. They would be the last people in the world to actually worship a human being as God, and yet that's exactly what we find them doing almost immediately after Easter Sunday. They came to Christ and bowed before him, as their God. In fact, these are the very people who knew him. These are the very people who lived with him. These are the very people that were acquainted with him day by day. If you wanted to convince people that you were God, the last people you would start with would be your family. Right? Last people you would start with are the people that know you. The people who worship Elvis, they never lived with him. Right? He was a figure on TV. Right? And yet these are the very ones who were with him, who lived with him, the monotheistic Jews, and they concluded that Jesus Christ was God himself, and therefore he shows us who God is. He is the image of the invisible God. In fact, that word image, I think, is very interesting. It's a loaded term, isn't it? We, we read about this term, uh, the term image throughout uh, Scripture. Of course, we're told in the second commandment, for instance, that we are forbidden to make an image of God which is, was a very unique command, very interesting command. In my mind, it kind of stands out amongst the Ten Commandments. It would have been very strange in that day. And in fact, almost every religion, uh, they would create images of their God, and yet the Jews in that day were, were told or forbidden to, from making an image of God. The elders were actually discussing this on Thursday night. Why? What, what, what's the rationale behind the Second Commandment? One of the realities we thought about is that how would we even begin to make an image of God, right? How do you reduce God to an image? If you do so, you're going to miss something. I mean, is God going to be smiling? Or is he frowning? Because if he's smiling, you're going to obscure his wrath against sin or his grief over injustice. But if he's simply frowning, then you'll obscure his compassion and his kindness and his goodness. I think this is, for me, one of the problems with the pictures of Jesus that sometimes we have. We, we won't have those that are not in my home. 
Because I think when, when, when we present Jesus as sweet and nice, we conceal his courage. We conceal his anger. We misconstrue God. And see, what we have in Jesus, actually, with the image of God, we don't miss anything about God in Jesus. As one pastor put it, we see in him the combination of all excellencies, high claims, but he's never pompous. Tenderness without weakness, strength without harshness, humility without lack of confidence, unbending conviction without the slightest lack of approachability, power without insensitivity, enthusiasm without fanaticism, holiness without legalism, passion without prejudice. Nothing he does falls short. In fact, he's always surprising us, taking your breath away because he's so incomparably better than you could imagine. You see, in Christ, he shows us who God is in no no way that an image could. But I think there's also a second reason why God forbade us from making his image. And and you're probably already aware of it. He, He forbade us from doing it because God already did it himself. Namely, you and I. For we read in the book of Genesis, chapter 1, where God says, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, man and woman in our image. And so we we see that in Scripture. We are made in God's image. We are to show to one another what God is like. And yet, sadly, all of us have chosen a different path. We have chosen a path of rebellion. We have chosen a path of self-focus, often a path of wickedness. And so, amazingly, when Jesus comes and he shows us what God is like, you see he's also showing us what we are to be like too. Showing us what, what, how God intended for us to be and how he will one day, uh, how we will one day become. Jesus, in many ways, is a portrait of true humanity. It was in 1954 when Winston Churchill commissioned a portrait of himself to be painted. He was hoping that the portrait would portray the splendor of the office of the prime minister. Instead, the portrait showed him sitting slumped over a simple wooden chair, bearing a quizzical scowl, surrounded by bleak and wintry tones. Churchill would say the portrait made me look, quote, like a down and out drunk who has been picked out of the gutter. His wife, interestingly enough, confessed it was really quite alarmingly like him. (laughs) Both despised it. It was intended to hang in the House of Parliament and never saw a day there. Shipped off to their country estate. Once Churchill had died, his wife unceremoniously had it burnt in the front yard. Because we want to be glorious, don't we? We, we, we We want others to be impressed with us. And yet reality, kind of like Churchill's portrait, reveals we are often not what we are supposed to be, not what we want to be. And yet Christ comes and he presents to us another portrait. He presents to us a picture of what we can be, of what we should be, of what we one day will be. See, Christ as being the image of God, he's also the image of authentic humanity. And he has come to restore us back to that image that he has shown us. For we read in Romans chapter 8 and verse 29, those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So please understand, my brothers and sisters, in saving you, 
God is in many ways restoring you to what he intended you to be. For we read in 1 Corinthians 15, our destiny, as Paul would write, just as we've been born, excuse me, just as we've born the image of the man of dust, that's a reference to Adam, we shall bear the image of the man of heaven. And so for those of you who are in Christ, do you want forgiveness? Yes, of course you do. Do you want eternal life when you die? Yes, we want that. Do you want to become like Jesus? Is that high upon your list? Right? He's empowering us even now to, to become like that. Just turn over one page in your book of Colossians. It's Colossians chapter 3. And you see this glorious truth. That he says, having, uh, in verse 10 having put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. So we're, this is happening to you right now, Christian. You are being renewed. It, it, how? Through knowledge. Towards what end? The image of your creator. The image of Christ. God is making you like that. And in fact, all throughout Colossians chapter 3, he describes what that's like. And so he says in verse 5, because of this reality, we should put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. He tells us what we should become there in verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must all forgive. And above all these things, put on love. You see, that's the image. That's what we're to become. And I wonder if there's anything in these verses that strike you, that you realize that you're living in discord to what God is going to make you to be. I wonder if God would even draw your eyes upon one of them, one of these vices which we should put off, or one of these virtues which we should put on, and that God would burden you to have a greater longing to become like that, for you long to be like Christ. Of course, he's simply not a prophet. We see there in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15, he is also a king. For we read the second half of that verse, he is the firstborn of all creation. The firstborn of all creation. Now when we think about firstborn, we think of course of a firstborn child. Right? And so we read, for instance, in Luke chapter 2 and verse 7, that Mary gave birth to her firstborn son. What does that mean? It means that she has, Jesus is her first son, she's going to have Many other sons. She, in fact, we know she's going to have four other sons. So Jesus is the first of all her sons. And so when it says that Jesus is the firstborn of creation, does that therefore mean that Jesus, of all creation, Jesus is the first? Jesus is the first created thing. This is what the Jehovah's Witnesses believe. They believe that Jesus was created just like you and me, that therefore Jesus is not divine. He's just another created being. He happens to be the first created being, but is a created being. It was created by Jehovah. In fact, they believe that Jesus is, is just the archangel Michael by another name. This is not a, a view that was invented by the Jehovah's Witnesses in the mid, or I guess the late 19th century. It was actually a very ancient Christian heresy called Arianism. It was popularized around the turn of the fourth century by a bishop named Arius, in which he would say, I quote him in reference to Jesus, there was a time when he was not, for the Son is a creature and a work. 
He would look to Colossians 1 and verse 15 as his main argument, saying he is the firstborn of all creation. Therefore, we understand Jesus is not divine. Jesus is not God, that Jesus was created like you and I. He would, Arius was a very musically talented man, and he would make his heresy popular through catchy tunes. We have historical accounts that you would hear people singing these songs, mocking the divinity of Jesus, the belief that Jesus is actually divine, on their way to church. And it became so popular that the, 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 the Roman Empire called a council in the year 325 AD. We know it as the Council of Nicaea, the very first ecumenical council. From that council, oh, there was written a creed. We call that the Nicene Creed. We often quote that creed here as a church as a statement of what we believe and what the church has always believed now for uh, 17 centuries once that creed was written. In that creed, we, we, uh, we read, Jesus Christ begotten, not made, of the same essence of the Father. And so the declaration that came out of that council as they gathered to debate, was Jesus made or was he not made? The conclusion they had was that Jesus was not made. He is not part of creation. But I tell you, that outcome was not a foregone conclusion for historians tell us about two-thirds of the church in that day believed that Jesus was a created being led by this very influential man named Arius, this bishop. There was one, another bishop who did not believe that Jesus was a created being. He was the Bishop of Murrah. We know him as St. Nicholas. Yes, that's St. Nicholas. In fact, St. Nicholas was previously persecuted by Rome at the turn of the 4th century. He was imprisoned for claiming that Christ was divine. And he was tortured with red-hot pinchers. And his body would bear those wounds for the rest of his life. That persecution ended in the year 313 A.D. and when Constantine became emperor and issued the Edict of Milan, not only making Christianity legal in the Roman Empire, but actually making it the official religion. Twelve years later, they call the Council of Nicaea in 325. Arius was invited to present his view, which we know is heretical, and the, the Bishop of Murrah, St. Nicholas, was one of those who were invited. The story tells us to Legend, perhaps, and we're not sure of the historical veracity, but I love the story that there was a time when Arius got up to defend his view that Jesus was a created being, and he actually began to sing one of his mocking songs. Well, St. Nicholas was so infuriated after having been tortured for his belief in Christ that he got up, and while Arius was in the middle of his song, he punched him in the mouth. Right? Who knew Santa had it in him, right? This may be why Jehovah's Witnesses don't celebrate Christmas, right? I'm not sure. Well, how do we know that St. Nicholas was right and Arius was wrong? I mean, he does say he's the firstborn of all creation. My brothers and sisters, all we have to do is keep reading. We, see, we always must interpret the Bible in context. Right? And, and this is what cults always do. They take a verse, they take a half a verse in this case, they pull it out of its context, screaming and crying, and they make it say something it does not say. So just to keep reading, for he, for he is the firstborn of all creation. We'll look in the first word in verse 16. For, because, he is the firstborn of all creation. Now we're going to find out why. 
What's the ground upon which he is the firstborn of all creation? Well, we read, for by him all things were created. He is the firstborn of all creation because he created all things. Note it doesn't say he created all other things except himself. He created all things. So all things that have been created have been created by Jesus. And if he created all things, then Jesus is not created. He is not part of this creation. Well, you might ask, then why does it call, why does Paul call him the firstborn? Well, the firstborn is a title that actually has two distinct meanings in Scripture. It can mean first child. We've already seen this. But often it means a title. Often it means a rank of dignity. It means the one who rules or has supremacy or will inherit. For instance, in Psalm 89, we read of David that God will make, God says, I will make him my firstborn, the most exalted king of the earth. Okay, David was not the firstborn. He's like the seventhborn. So God is saying, no, I'm going to make him the firstborn. In other words, I'm going to exalt him. Right? Of course, this is not simply a psalm about David. It's a psalm pointing us to Jesus, that he will be the exalted uh, king of the earth. And we read in Exodus 4 and verse 22, God referred to Israel, my firstborn. He's placing the, the status of a firstborn son upon them, that they bear the authority. Or we go to the New Testament, we read in Hebrews 12 and verse 23, that the church is the assembly of the firstborn. In other words, you look around and what we see here is a whole room of firstborns. You say, how is that possible? I wasn't, I'm a thirdborn. How is it that I'm a firstborn? How is it that this is the church of the firstborn? Well, this is a, a title which God is bestowing upon his people that, that, that we one day will rule this earth, that we will inherit it as a firstborn will. And so the firstborn is a reference to Christ's authority, that he is king over all this world. And so we read in Revelation chapter 11, loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And so I tell you, brothers and sisters, this morning that every monarch who has ever reigned and every president who has ever led and every government that was ever formed and every judge who has ever ruled and every general who has ever commanded and every person who has ever lived one day shall bow before King Jesus. He's not simply a child in a manger or a babe in the arms of the virgin. And he's simply, not simply the founder of an influential religion with an impressive personality. I tell you, this morning, when at 9.56, December 6, 2020, that Jesus Christ is alive, enthroned in heaven, and is reigning as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he has authority over all creation, including you and me. Is that how you see him? One with all authority? Many people come to Jesus and say, be my teacher. Be my example. They come to Jesus and say, solve my problems, forgive my sins, answer my prayers. But they don't come and say, be first in my life. Be my king who commands me. My friends, that's who he is. You can't take him as one without taking the other. You can't set him aside. You can't marginalize him. He is the ruler of all things. 
And there's coming a day, I'm telling you, when, when we'll put Jesus on one side of the scale and, and the accomplishment of every single human being who has ever lived on the other side, it won't even be close. It will be clear to all that he is the glorious image of the invisible God, that he is indeed the firstborn of all creation. And therefore, we ought to gaze upon him in stunning wonder. We ought to bow to him in joyful submission. I pray you come today with a heart wanting to yield more and more of your life to him as king. Of course, we have him as king because he first has redeemed us. We learn later in this wonderful passage, in fact, just glance your eyes as we close there in verse 21. Look what you were, my brothers and sisters, and you were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present to you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith. You see, he is king, our king, because he is our savior, the one who's reconciled us through his death. And how do we receive that reconciliation? You see it there in verse 23. We do so by faith, in faith. And so I invite you, if you're here this morning, you don't know Christ, you can place your faith in him and be reconciled to God, going from uh, enmity and hostility to, to being his and belonging to him forever. And to my Christian brothers and sisters, may we continue to rejoice in that truth this season, even as we long to yield our life more fully to him as our sovereign Lord. In fact, we come to this table in a moment to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And as we do, what we're, what we're celebrating is the work that Christ has, has done in order to reconcile us to him, that he might rule us and we might joyfully receive that. And so let me invite you to, to pray uh, even as I lead us, I'm going to give you a moment to pray silently as we prepare our hearts for the supper meal. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're thankful for the redemption that we have in him. We're thankful for that the, the feast in which we are about to celebrate is a feast of remembrance that our Lord was sent by you, our dear God, into this world to assume flesh and blood in order to fulfill obedience to your law, even to the bitter and shameful death on the cross. And so we will take this bread and we will take this cup, and in doing so, we are reminded of his death and his resurrection and his ascension and his soon return. We're reminded that through the death of Christ, he has established a new and eternal covenant. A covenant of grace, a covenant of reconciliation, a covenant of mercy that we might be accepted by you, our holy God, and that we shall never be forsaken by you. We pray even now, Father, silently in our own hearts as we seek to prepare our hearts, confessing any known sin, repenting of that, so that we might approach your table aware of your grace with a clean conscience.
Our Father, we are thankful for this meal which we are about to celebrate and the truths in which our souls feast upon. Help us to do so with delight and joy, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as I come down,